Hello, and welcome to Someday We'll All Be Dead, a podcast where we talk about all the things with a social work perspective. I'm your host, Hallie Harris, and I'm a hospice social worker. Today, I have the amazing Dr. Kirkonda with me, and we are going to be talking about some difficult subjects. So I do get into a lot more of the caveat, but this episode is going to be discussing suicide. So if you are not sure that's a good topic for you, I will not be offended if you go ahead and skip this episode. Otherwise, please be sure to take care of yourself afterwards. And if you have thoughts or comments, I always love to hear them. So here we go. Yeah, so uh, let's get into what, what do you want to talk about today? Well, um, thank you for joining me on this podcast. Um, can you introduce yourself? I'll introduce the podcast in the beginning and then you can introduce yourself. Sure. My name is Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a therapist and a professor for the past 23 years, and I have been a podcaster of the podcast Psychology in Seattle for the past 11 years. Which is awesome, and everyone should be subscribing, if not being a patron. Ah, thanks. (laughs) And that is really one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast today. So, What's been eating at me or what's been on my radar for the past couple of months, it's just one of those things where a topic keeps coming up and coming up, is um, the topic of suicide. And before we really get into it, I, I just want to check in with you because I know the fat shaming episode you did was pretty controversial and difficult. And this is going to be, I'm sure, no less controversial. So... I just want to check in with you and make sure you're feeling okay about everything. Well, it's nice of you uh, to care. And yeah, I feel much less uh, worried, I suppose, about my take on suicide um, because of experience of having talked about it before on the podcast. And and I don't, I think it is less controversial, I guess, in this, I've never thought about the comparison there, but the the fat shaming fat phobia you know fat acceptance is in such a controversial space in our culture right now uh, that it you know in my opinion in my little pocket far eclipses the controversy around suicide although suicide definitely does have, does have controversy and of course as I was trying to do some kind of cohesive outline with this. Every time I'm writing a sentence, it feels like I have another caveat. So I feel like I'm just going to be caveating my whole way through this thing. Uh, The word suicide itself is an emotionally charged word and it can be really triggering. So I just want listeners to be aware the title of this um, episode is going to be suicide is preventable, but should it be? And I'm not trying to get to a yes or no answer or a right or wrong answer, just an open discussion about it, but that, you know, people have either personal experience or connections with suicide or a moral stance on suicide or they're hearing about it like you know celebrities dying by suicide and it's really you know something that's triggering for people so I just want people to be aware before we get into all the details that they are watching out for themselves if they feel like it might be too much maybe skip this episode or take it in little pieces as you suggested before or have someone that they can check in with, uh, because it is a, a tricky thing to talk about. Absolutely. And one of the reasons, biggest reasons, that I uh, chose you to talk about this is because of your suicide deep dive on psychology in Seattle. And I was originally, I wrote down that it was on September of 2018, but I see that you recently reposted. 
Yeah, I it, that episode. I mean, I don't know what you thought about that episode, but that deep dive. I think it was something like thirteen hours long. Yeah, uh, <laughs> pod, pod, podcast episode, and so. I and there's a lot to say about suicide that I didn't realize I, when I first sat down to do the deep dive. I was like, okay, you know, maybe two hours at the most, and it blossomed into three, 13 hours. And then over the, uh, you know, the preceding year, as I have been talking with supervisees and trainees about suicide and their clients, I have been wanting to go back to my notes and refine them down because it was you know hundreds of pages of notes and, and it was hard for me to remember all because there's so many details to remember really and so in my uh, condensing of the notes I was like you know I probably should just re-record this deep dive um, I thought I could do it again in two hours it ended up being like six hours but that's <laughs> that's that's shorter than 13 and I think that my understanding of suicide has evolved further since you know that deep dive a year ago I'll see how you are. I didn't listen to the new one. I listened to the 13-hour one. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's the 6-hour one is is a shorter version, but I do think it there's some new things in there, some some uh, you know, further refinement, I would say. There's probably not a lot of new things, but yeah, refinement. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I seem to remember and like you said it's been a year now. <clears throat> um, but I remember of, of the many, many different areas of suicide, that the thing I came away from is that your main point was that it really is preventable most, if not all, of the time. And, you know, so that, from that deep dive, like you said, there's so many other things to talk about with it, but specifically that. Um, and more recently, you were on the Dad Challenge podcast, and it wasn't the topic of the episode, but somehow you came upon it. And the host, one of the hosts had said, is it not humane to let that person decide what they want to do um, when you're discuss discussing chronic depression and chronic suicidality? Um, and then I just want to point out a couple of things and then please jump in. Um, on top of that, I just finished reading a book called Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. And again, that book was not about suicide, but towards the end, it started talking about coupling. Have you heard of this coupling before about in relation to suicide? No, but I love Malcolm Gladwell and I listened to his podcast, Revisionist History. So he might have talked about it, but I don't remember it off the he, top of my head. He was talking about um, coupling ideation with specific places. And he started talking about Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton and how they were using carbon monoxide to die by suicide. And the, the ways that they did that, like they had this thing called town gas, which transferred over to some kind of other natural gas. And that Anne Sexton was in a 1967 vehicle and 10 years later in her car would have had a catalytic converter. And so <clears throat> they're using these methods that I think originally people thought, well, they'll just seek other means if they can't use that means. But then research keeps showing that that's not actually true. Like for the town gas thing, there was over 5,000 suicides in the years preceding, you know, like every year with so many suicides. And then it dropped down to hundreds, if not less. And they didn't go find other means. And of course, the Golden Gate Bridge is another one where you see after they put the net up that people didn't just go find another bridge. And there are plenty of tall things to jump off of. 
Yeah, it is a very interesting phenomenon and, and surprising to me as I headed into the data because it stands to reason that if you're going to make such a big choice to kill yourself, that you, the people who you know, make that choice must have contemplated it thoroughly. They must have uh, you know, been sure of it for you know, months, if not years. Because I just think about myself, if, if I were to kill myself, I would, I would have to mull it over for a long period of time and, and really make sure, yes, this is, you know, there's no other way and this is the, you know, I'm going to do it. And then I would think, okay, well, how am I going to do it? Well, you know, there's five to ten different ways to do it. And so I'll, I'll, and if one doesn't work, I'll try another way. But the data doesn't actually show that, as, as you're pointing out. It, it shows that people will contemplate suicide for a long time and and some people might even be quite uh, desirous of killing themselves but there's an opposing force often of I want to live and maybe there is some hope or even if there isn't a lot of hope maybe you know there's little moments in life that are worth staying alive for or I don't want to bother other people I don't want to hurt other people so I'll stay alive for that for now and when there's some sort of interrupt, i.e. there isn't a convenient way to kill yourself, like a ready-made suicide machine in your kitchen, you know, for Sylvia Plath, because she put her head in the In, uh, the, in the oven, yeah. Yeah. Um, then for some reason, you just see people not follow through with it. Uh, and I think that that, you know, tells us, again, as, as you pointed out, that people have spikes in motivation and if we can just get them through those spikes then they will thank the universe or us or themselves or whatever for getting them through that spike mm -hmm. and we actually hear people's stories who have attempted or who are on the verge of attempting they will often say that they'll say i was determined that day and the thoughts have been building in me for a while. And, you know, like one story I talk about that I read online um, on my deep dive is this one guy, I don't know if I talked about it actually, but this one guy, you know, had thought about suicide for a long time and, and this three-day period he was like, yeah, I'm definitely going to do it. And he was going to jump off of a tall building. And so he went up to the top of a building and, he was about to jump off and he got a call from his sister and his sister was like, Hey, you know, you want to come over and watch a movie with me and the kids. And he was like, Oh, you know, it'd be kind of a bummer if I killed myself after she called me. <laughs> so, okay, fine. You know, but definitely later tonight, I'll, I'll come back here and jump off. So he goes over to her house and watches, uh, you know, a cartoon with the kids and he never, thought about suicide again or he never had serious thoughts about suicide again so there he was the top of a building ready to go and he says like yeah there was no way i was not gonna jump but just because my sister you know he's sort of boggled by it. he's just like so just because i my sister called and i was just hanging out with her i mean that wasn't even that big of a deal to me but just i don't know there's something about just hanging out with those kids and and then boom, like, uh, I never, I never attempted again. I never really was serious. It, it, it defies logic, I guess, um, 
but yet that is the way it is. And so we just really have to try to get that uh, to the public and to the individuals going through those experiences. Yeah, and it, it made me curious as I have seen those statistics and I've heard you talk about it and I've read the reports of people that actually survived jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge and the ones that did survive, you know, sounds like many, if not all of them, were thankful that they did. But I've also heard anecdotal stories from people that I know um, of people in kind of different situations, which is what I kind of think I want to get to is even when they were suicidal and had a, a do not resuscitate strapped to their chest and the paramedics didn't do it. Um, and they woke up in the hospital really angry <laughs> um, and, and continued to be suicidal. And I, from my time when I volunteered at the crisis line, it was Saturday nights from 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. You can imagine I get all kind of calls doing that for about two and a half years down in the Seattle area. And yeah. it wasn't all suicidal ideation for sure. I mean, actually, it wasn't nearly as many as I probably thought it would be. Um, and I did have to sometimes use what you were referring to, which is, you know, I'd, I'd be talking to him and try to process things. And sometimes the only thing I could say is, you know, some part of you wants to live because you called. Or I sometimes even have to go a little harsher and say, you know, you've got kids. If you do this, they're going to be 20% more likely to do it themselves. And, you know, that's always a last resort. That's not what I want to start out with telling people when I'm trying to talk them out of it. But Were um, you trained to say that? Because I know they provide a lot of training. Yeah, it's, it's more, yes. I mean, that's, again, the last resort. It's not the first thing we, we go to. But if you've been on the phone with someone for a while, um, and I've, I had someone call and say they had a knife to their throat, and I don't know if they really did or not. I have to assume that they did. Uh, kept talking, kept talking, you know, and, and I would eventually get to the point of, you know, well, some, some part of you wants to live because you're on the phone with me. And, right. but it makes me wonder, and I guess I should have asked you to maybe look into this before we talked, but maybe you already know the statistics of the difference between someone that maybe is going through uh, a big breakup or some kind of grief or major thing in their life that is causing the suicidal ideation versus someone with either chronic mental illness or chronic pain, things that are not going to get better. And I realize that some people with those conditions can, you know, have good attitudes and not be suicidal. But for the people that are, that it just, it never really goes away. It's every single day. And I think that's kind of what the, the guy on the dad podcast was talking about. It's like, the people that live with it every day, nothing's going to actually get really better unless they are able to change their mindset or their perspective. Um, those people, is it, it's preventable, but that's where the gray area of my libertarian slash social work streak of self-determination comes in and makes me wonder, should it be? And should we slash I, um, be telling people they have to live with that. I'm not the one that has to live with that. They do. Yeah. Uh, and I'm very curious about your experiences firsthand because you have and do work in hospice, correct? I do. Yeah. And have, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, run into um, a lot of these nuances with 
people who write have do not resuscitate or uh, there's plenty of uh, situations where the individual dying and the family basically make choices to end life sooner than later mm-hmm. um, whether it be to refuse or to you know scale back on a treatment that will extend their life by you know statistically maybe another month but it'll be a, a painful month or literally just pulling the plug on, on certain things um, you run into situations like that right I do and um, I do want to get into that <laughs> let's put a pin in that part first if we can and come back to it because that whole that's another gray shade of how we look at terminal illness and and somehow that's acceptable versus people that aren't technically dying even though you know we're all dying every day in theory quote you know like the podcast says someday we'll all be dead but we're not actively dying we're not going to die in the next weeks or months so for people that aren't going through that part you know we we find it okay to euthanize pets if they bite someone and they're not dying. Yeah, 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 yeah. And your experience, just generally with death, mm-hmm. gives you, I think, a more uh, wise perspective on this, because there is something underlying the discourse of suicide often uh, that we have to acknowledge that um, it's hard for us to acknowledge that we're going to die at any point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and when people die of suicide, uh, if you have an assumption that, even though it's not logical, but kind of an unsaid assumption that we're all going to live forever forever, and our loved ones are going to live forever, suicide it can feel like uh, so much worse because it was like, well, but you were going to live forever. But if you acknowledge like, look, well, you know, everyone dies and, and so, you know, yeah, it's tragic, and, and it, it could have been prevented, but, you know, in 50 years, well, you know, everyone I know is going to be dead or something <laughs> like that, you know. Uh, so what's, you know, what it, and so, yeah, I, you know, I imagine your perspective is welcome. And, and something that I, I probably didn't go into enough on the, the podcast, uh, but I did go into a little bit of it. And there's, there's a lot you can say. I mean, the first thing I'll say as a caveat is that, even with those people who suffer from conditions that we might consider, you know, I, I guess one way to look at it is say you have a hundred people on a jury and you ask them to vote yes or no. Is this suicide wise or not? Mm-hmm. Is this suicide a good idea? And so if you had someone who, had, you know, just went through a breakup and they're 13 right. and you're going to get a hundred people like, no, uh, come on, kid, you're 13, plenty of fish in the sea. I know it feels horrible. It is not the end of the world. I know it feels that way, but you know, this is not a justifiable suicide. Right. And I think Um, about that way with the bullying situations, especially with the very young kids. Right. Uh, everyone would just be like, no, 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 that's not this. You know, I, I get the intent there because you're in a, tough spot but no that your life will be so much better and that it gets better you know i mean that was the whole it gets better movement was started on was like stop 
stopping LGBTQ plus kids from killing themselves because mm -hmm. it's like, hey, it gets better, you know. You, uh, when you get older, you get to choose your life a little bit more, and society's changing. But anyway, um, and then we at the other end of the spectrum, we have uh, a woman. Uh, I can't remember her name. I talked about on the podcast who famously a few years ago had a uh, aggressive form of brain cancer and was definitely going to die within you know a few months or something and uh you know and the, the physician and she went through a number of treatments they tried to you know um you know help and then the physicians were like no 100 percent you're gonna die and here's the course you're you're going to suffer mm -hmm. you're going to lose your brain function you're gonna lose um your personality in some ways and although you'll be alive you, you know you'll either be you know made to be unconscious because of the suffering or you know all these horrible things and the woman i can't she was like 30 or something i can't remember how old she was and um she decided that she was going to die with dignity and she was going to uh this is the one that moved to oregon right yeah she had to move to oregon because mm -hmm. oregon's laws allowed that and i think she was from california which didn't allow it i'm not sure but um and uh, made national news, and I think she even did talk shows before she died, and and she did, mm -hmm. uh, she did, she did take her life with the help of physicians, with her family by her side, and it's heartbreaking. Uh, but I think a hundred, maybe not a hundred, you know, I, there's probably certain religious beliefs that would prevent some people from signing off on it. But you know, let's say eighty out of a hundred, uh, a jury of our peers would say, yeah, I mean that's pretty logical there's no way out there's no sense in going through the pain of that okay so that's at the other end of the spectrums there's a lot of things in between there right so if you have someone who has chronic say back pain and they've had 10 surgeries nothing's worked and they can't sleep that you know that their their tolerance of morphine and other opioids opiates are uh so high that they don't work anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, they're in a constant bad mood. They're, you know, they isolate themselves because they're always snapping at everyone. They can't work. Um, they they're they're depressed because of it. They can't move around. They need people to bring them food. Uh, they're just miserable. It's been literally twelve years of that life. The physicians have said, "There's no way out of this. You're, you know, there's." Uh, it's just going to be this way forever. Yeah, I don't even know if this is a plausible medical scenario. but Oh, it is. <laughs> okay. I ran into so, that at end of life, too. <laughs> okay. So, for that person, uh, and they're 42 years old, and they have likely another 30 years left in their life, and they're just like, no. Um, and let's add to the fact that they're uh, heavily Christian, and they believe that they're going to go to heaven. They've been baptized and they've lived a good life and they believe that if they die, uh, they go to paradise and their back will be fixed. And their family believes it too. So let's just add that to the equation of just like, uh, you know, and they also believe that God would allow them to kill themselves and would still let them into heaven, um, which isn't always the case, but, you know, there are uh, certain religious sects that will uh, adhere to that belief. And then, that person says, uh, yeah, you know, now you do a, a 
a jury of the peers and you know let's say it's like you know 70 percent who knows 60 percent of out of 100 um but there are cases like that where uh and they've done studies where they they look at people like that and they're like okay let's evaluate your care from top to bottom let's figure out you know if there are other options that might help not take away your pain because that's not physically possible given our technologies today but maybe there's just a, a different kind of scenario that you'll feel different about so things like uh, it, social support like maybe it's going to a back pain uh, support group three times a week maybe it's having something entertaining to do maybe it's pain a, a much better pain management system that doesn't involve substances like uh, mindfulness and um, creativity, getting into the zone so your brain is is temporarily distracted. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's meaning in your life. Maybe, maybe you need to become an advocate for back pain awareness and you're being interviewed on CNN and Oprah and that gives you a reason to, to, you know, to persevere and keep going. And suddenly, now the person no longer wants to die and they they're looking forward to the next 30 years of their life even though their pain is exactly the same and their disability is exactly the same mm -hmm. so we see cases like that now it's not universal and uh certainly hard to engineer for everyone to go on oprah <laughs> but and resources are limited in the community unfortunately and people have so many problems with pain clinics right yeah <clears throat> absolutely but there are cases in you know empirical observation where that will happen when uh, you give people the holistic care uh, that is tailored to them they have meaning they see their pain differently they feel a part of uh, their you know family or social circle or something and that is something we don't typically look at you know when mm -hmm. when and physicians aren't trained to really look at that um, that's what you're trained to look at. And so uh, that's the things that, that you will do, you know. And so um, that's another thing we have to point out. Now, again, that doesn't work for everyone. So uh, so for those people that I'm, I'm going to say are in that category where it's, where it's like, you know, the woman who had the brain cancer and she's going to die painfully over the next three months. It's like, I, you know, if you say no to that, suicide i think you're being kind of cruel you know it, you're being cruel to her you know mm -hmm. uh that's just that's just uh not fair it's not recognizing the reality of her life to someone who has 12 years of, of back pain it's and it's terrible it's never going away uh i think i guess now that i think about it, it it sort of bifurcates into two categories. We have the category of people. So with all those people, I think we should allocate tax dollars to trying to, um, you know, do uh, the holistic care, uh, which essentially would mean, you know, for every Hallie Harris, there's, you know, a hundred Hallies yes. <laughs> uh, who are trained in that and, and have the time and the space to actually like problem solve for fewer um, patients. But, um, and for those people, uh, there's two groups. There's the group of people who, after, let's say, a year or two of trial and error, um, if, if for those it works, then great. And for those that it doesn't, 
now we're in a category of people who um, what is called rational suicide uh, developed by Nico Spears or Spears, I don't know how to pronounce his name back in the 80s and he had six different criteria mm-hmm. he, wrote a, he wrote a book in 1980 and he said so number one the person experiencing the person is experiencing unbearable pain and no relief is expected and of course that pain can be physical or be psychological so so this person with you know ongoing back pain and it's terrible kind of fits that category right number two the wish for suicide has been ongoing uh, meaning that it wasn't it's not a flash in the pan Number three, the person is competent to make the decision, meaning that they're not psychotic or drug-addled or something. Uh, number four, the decision was not made under pressure. Free will was involved, which, you know, stands to reason. Number five is there's no predictable, unnecessary harm to others, meaning that um, there's uh, your the nature, like a common example is the method of suicide isn't going to cause one of your children to find you right that kind of thing um number six every every step should be fully documented and given to the authorities this is you know to protect those who survive from liability essentially which is so, almost you know, word for word our death with dignity laws for the few states that have them interesting i, I want i'm sure that they looked at nico spears material because because he so he writes this book he, he was a a prominent suicidologist at the time and when he came out with this book it was a bit of a shocker because the vast majority of suicidology is centered around prevention and mm-hmm. you know the kind of talk that i was saying earlier he comes out with this book and you're like huh and then a year later he kills himself i remember because, you talking about this <laughs> yeah because he had a I, I don't remember the exact illness, but it was some terminal thing that had a lot of pain. And his wife killed himself at the same time because she didn't want to, she also had some form of disability and she didn't want to live without her husband. It was a, uh, this, this shocker mm-hmm. that this prominent suicidologist uh, comes out with this book and everyone's like, huh? And then he, and then he kills himself and it was this huge wave and and so now we have to contend with someone who dedicated their career to understanding suicide suicide and prevention and all the clinical work that we do as as clinicians felt that there are times when it is quote-unquote rational to kill yourself and um and not only is it hard for clinicians to accept that in the same way that it's hard for physicians, as you know, mm-hmm. to accept that sometimes, you know, you just gotta, it's palliative care, right? You don't extend, you know, the, the mandate to save lives is sometimes counter to the well-being of humans, you know? Well, and even in the palliative world, it's difficult for some of them to even discuss hospice. Even though yeah. it's basically the same thing with a longer prognosis. <laughs> what do you mean? It's, I don't know. What, 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 so what so hospice care is determined by the last, you know, an educated guess of six months or less. And a lot of other things go into hospice. But hospice is basically the six months or less version of palliative care. Palliative care is more like if you have a year or five years left, let's say. 
and they're going to be seeing you more on an outpatient basis rather than in your home where kind of where hospice would go. And, but they're still looking at comfort care. When, when you're switching to palliative care, it's really more about comfort and quality of life than curing or curative treatment. So, or, exten- or extending life. Right, right. So, but even, even in that world, I mean, doctors are just now, they're just now incorporating how to discuss death and dying with patients in medical school. But even in the palliative world, it's still a challenge for many, many doctors because their whole oath and their whole training is treat, treat, treat. Then some of them are very reluctant to even have the discussion of let's focus on comfort and quality of life. And patients and families, right? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because in my experience, Americans in particular believe that our medical system can save anything, can do anything. <laughs> that too. And because we have a culture where we don't discuss death and dying, um, then, you know, when it actually faces you and, you know, I don't mean to call you out specifically, but I know you mentioned that you are fortunate enough to not have a lot of loss in your life. And for families like that, who haven't grown up in a culture of talking about death and dying, when they're faced with that, it's detrimental. It's, it's, you know, sometimes rips apart their theology even when, you know, it could have been something that they could see with beauty and grace and a part of life, they're seeing it as a life-altering, devastating situation. Yeah, so what do you see specifically with regards to that? Because as we've talked about before, you and I, I have always fantasized about having your job. (laughs) (laughs) There, There was even a time when I actually actively pursued working in hospice as a clinician, as a mental health person i didn't know that yeah oh i didn't tell you that Uh, but because of as you also probably know i have a fascination with death not like not anxiety but you think about it (laughs) yeah but it's not just yeah it's just the whole thing about the fact that we're all going to be dead like one of the things that just a side note on my fascination with this and it's not a fascination like horror movies it's it's more you know based in reality which is like i'll i'll be watching a movie and i if if one of the actors is has died since the making of a movie or a tv show i can't stop thinking about that when i see that actor on the screen i Mm -hmm. can't stop thinking like oh that person like a philip seymour hoffman movie or a robin williams movie i just can't stop thinking like that he's he's gone he's he's rotting or in the ground or he's, he's, you know, uh, ashes right now. And, you know, I apologize to the audience if this is somehow not good to listen to, but, but that's the way my brain works. I, I, I see the passage of time in terms of units of, of death. And I always have, I've always, since I was a, a kid and, and like, like you said that I said, I haven't experienced a lot of loss, so it's not a really big reason as to why I would even think about it that much. I mean, the only thing I can really point to is when I was young, I had two little kittens that died overnight very quickly. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and I loved these two little kittens, and uh, I don't know how they died. I don't, I don't think we ever knew, and in the 70s, I don't think we cared to investigate such things. Mm-hmm. They just, We just woke up one morning, and they were stiff as a board, and I, I just remember uh, 
that was a big loss. So I guess if there's anything, maybe that was it, you know, being a young kid, you're just like, um, that terrible feeling of losing pets, you know? And, and so anyway, um, uh, yeah. And, and a lot of people don't think about it. And so when the time comes, uh, I just imagine that there's a fair amount of, um, your perspective, your experience, your wisdom around this, and I'm guessing, you know, on the scale of things, quite accepting of the reality of death. Well, you know, what kinds of transitions or things or reactions do you see in people, families, and individuals? Oh, it's it honestly is the whole gamut. And before I forget, because when you were talking before, I didn't inter- want to interrupt you, and there's so many things that popped into my mind. <laughs> you just mentioned the words physician assisted for rational suicide and I just because of my job and because of all my talks with people I just want to clarify for people that even the death with dignity law is not technically physician assisted they are prescribing you a lethal dose of medication they are assisting you as far as doing the mental evaluation and and counseling but they're not there you have to self-administer so I just wanted to put that caveat in um, the way that people face death, it, it's so many factors in how that happens. Number one is loss history, of course. If it's, if they've had something more recent as well, not just how many losses they've had, but how recent it has been, what kind of loss they've had. Um, specifically in hospice, uh, people are often afraid of a lot of myths, like the kind of medicines that we're able to use. And for, you know, I've had a family recently that had a history of another family member that died from an overdose. So, of course, they're even more sensitive to any kind of medication that may be used for comfort because of that history. Um, Some people, when they're really younger, are very accepting. And I've had people that are in their 90s that are still not accepting of death. So it, it really runs the gamut as far as what their personal experience is, what their um, personal beliefs are and all of that. What, what kind of things do they do? A 90 year old who is in hospice and everyone's saying, yep, you know, the end is near. What do they, what do they do as they're resisting? Well, sometimes they just don't come on hospice. (laughs) First of all, (laughs) they're just like, no, I'm not dying. Uh, sometimes they'll get talked into hospice and we will assure them that, you know, just because the criteria is six months or less it doesn't mean you're going to die in six months or less you could stay on longer if you're continuing to meet the criteria of decline which we've had plenty of people do um, like what percentage would you say live beyond six months i'm trying to remember what our statistics are i think the average is closer to a week or two but that's because we get quite a few people that because of many factors myths being one of them that they don't come onto hospice until they're very close to the end which is sad for us because we have so much to offer that, you know, it's hard to get it all in there when they're close to death. Um, but, and then some people are just in denial or some people want to do that treatment right up until the last possible time. And by the time they stop, they're close. Um, but we've also, you said the average is a week. I think if you look at all of our patients, the average is somewhere between a week or two, but so that means like, Plenty of people get there and die that day. Some people do, yeah. Some people die. Some people come on as they're actively dying. And then we also have people like one person was on for almost three years. 
You know, we've had other people that come on and off for three or four years. Like they come on because they got pneumonia, for example, and then they recover and then they graduate hospice and then they come back on when they have something else to go on. So, I mean, <clears throat> there's really both ends of the bell curve, but I think kind of towards the center is that somewhere within the couple weeks range. Not my yeah. patients. Most of my patients are on for... I'd say weeks to months rather than days. Yeah. So what do you see in terms of those decisions being made of where it's not called suicide, but in essence, it's, it's a choice to uh, not extend life? What, what kinds of decisions do you see being made? Well, I think in reference to suicide itself i think that's part of the gray area that i want to get into is are you talking about withholding treatment or are you talking about specifically death with dignity um, because those are two very different things even though they're not to you know in my mind they can be in the same vein um, yeah. people can also do v said which is voluntarily stopping eating and drinking and that is not considered suicide, even though you're ending your life earlier. When you stop so, treatment, you're ending your life earlier. So, yeah, yeah. Walk me through that. So you have someone who is in hospice with you, and they're they have some kind of condition where it's like, yeah, the end is near, and I'm in pain, and I just want to go on to the next phase of existence, mm -hmm. and I. I've been told that I could voluntarily stop eating and drinking mm -hmm. or it just occurs to them or how does that work? Uh, not very many people honestly do uh, V-SED because it's pretty challenging and it, it can take some constitution in the first couple of days. And also uh, oftentimes your body, when you're getting closer to the end of your journey, is just automatically going to stop wanting food and drink. So you're going to slow down with that regardless. But if you really were not that far along, you could choose to not do it. I, in the whole time I've been at hospice, almost five years now, um, I think I've maybe heard of one or two. But, it, I mean, it's an option. And you don't have to be on hospice to do it. You could, in theory, do it any time. And would we consider that suicide? Like, if I stopped eating and drinking today, is it still suicide? I mean, I would characterize it as that if the intent was to die. Right, but it's not... You know, I think that's where the gray area is, right? Is It's still technically a natural death. Um, right, yeah. I mean, similar to like leaving Las Vegas with uh, mm -hmm. Nicholas, Nicholas Cage going to Vegas to drink himself to mm -hmm. death. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a similar kind of thing. It's like, well, you know, he's just drinking a lot, but his intent is to kill right. himself. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, and and I wondered, I, I pondered to myself, um, and I was speaking to one of my nurses who was amazing, and uh, she has some pretty strong religious considerations about this, and she's had patients that um, wanted to and did go through death with dignity process. And she had to really talk to herself about that and whether, I mean, she was supportive of the patient, but the patient had asked, would the nurse be there? 
um, in our organization is really great. We support patients' choices, but we always have the option as individual clinicians to opt out if we don't want to be a part of that. Um, we can switch out case managers and social workers and whatever. Because of trauma? Uh, because a lot of things, whatever your personal reason is, if you don't feel like it's in your best mental health, you know, to do that, um, yeah. or you have a strong conviction about that and you don't want to be a part of it, then you can opt to not be there. Or Meaning, meaning a strong conviction that you don't believe it's the right choice? Right. Right. Oh. So, and specific, I mean, specifically death of dignity, not just normal hospice care. Yeah. Um, and so, but she did after consulting with herself and her religious convictions. And she did tell the patient that she would be there for her um, because she felt like her nursing obligations to the patient was to support her choices. And she still said she struggled with it quite a bit. And so we were talking about that a little bit yesterday. This was quite a couple of years ago, quite a few years ago now that it happened with her. Um, and so I posited to her, I wonder if in this whole context of not being on hospice, but going back to if you just had like chronic pain or whatnot, I, I just wonder hypothetically if rational suicide was available, not in a means where you could you know, shoot yourself or hang yourself or something traumatic like that. But if it was available more like death with dignity, I wonder if less people would use it because what I see in hospice is a lot of people just want it as a safety net and they may go through the whole process of being eligible to get the prescription and never use it. And so I wondered what your thoughts were on if, if it was legal, do you think they'd actually use it less because it just feels like a safety net that's there? And, and on top of that, you could also discuss it with your family so that the suicide itself would maybe not be as traumatic on the family because they wouldn't be finding you and, and it wasn't a surprise and you were able to talk about it, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I think we're heading in that direction as a society, whether it's exactly like that or not. I think in 50 years, our, you know, our society, United States, will have uh it'll just be one of the things that our society has is it's pretty easy option I, i'm guessing there'll still be culture and stigma around it but it will um, be an option for people um who get a sign off from you know certain professionals to, to move forward with that and i'm guessing that um, it wouldn't be that hard to find in the similar way that at a certain point it was really easy to find a physician to, to prescribe medical marijuana for you um you know, you just have to find the right physician that has a philosophy of like, well, it's up to you. Um, I'm guessing it would be similar for this. And um, but yeah, that's an interesting question because on, on one hand, as we were talking about earlier, when you have an easy access to like a gun, like another thing we should you know point out is that um, if there's a gun in the house, you're extremely more likely to die from suicide because you have this ready-made suicide machine in your house mm -hmm. you know pe people see handguns or you know, i guess specifically handguns but other other kinds of guns as well as you know hunting or self-protection but the vast majority of the time when a gun is being used to shoot someone and particularly kill someone it's for suicide mm -hmm. uh 
know, so if anyone sees a handgun in a house, they should see it as a suicide machine first and then a self-protection machine second. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that you can't use it for self-protection, but, you know, in all likelihood, on, on average, that gun, if it's going to kill someone, it's going to kill the person who owns that gun or has access to that gun. Um, so uh, when we take guns out of the house, it's a well-known research fact that uh, people survive and they, they, they live through it. And they, uh, the, the key is, is that they are happy that they lived through it. You know, it's not like they're frustrated five years later, like, God damn it, I wish I had a gun so I could kill myself. <laughs> they're like, oh, my God, if I had a gun that day, you know, or if, or if my, you know, therapist hadn't made sure that the guns were removed from my house, I'd be dead today. And I'm and I'm really sad about that. I'm glad I lived through that. Right. Yeah, most people. So if we have this uh, government sanctioned system of, uh, you know, physician assisted suicide or whatever we want to call it, um, it stands to reason that more people would die now as you said earlier the libertarianism is just like well even if it is a temporary thing and even if people do often regret having attempted who survived later on it's still in a certain philosophy it's still uh, not our place as a society or a um, you know government to restrict people's, uh, you know, wishes for their own life and body, uh, even if it is statistically likely that they're going to regret it. In the same way that um, we don't restrict people getting tattoos, there's plenty of uh, research pointing at a good percentage of people regret the tattoos that they get. Not all of them, but some of them. And yet, no one talks about restricting that choice. You know, mm-hmm. which is, well, it's a free country it's your body you, you, you're not tattooing someone else's body you're tattooing yourself and if you want to do that you can you can write you know fuck off right across <laughs> your face you know and and although you're likely going to regret that no one is standing in your way it's it's a free country it is funny um, which rights we choose to advocate for and which rights we don't right and it probably comes from religion in the past and certain victorian ideas and uh and so there's that. Um, so there is that, that that does raise that that question. Um, so that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it, which I think is interesting that you bring up, which is that in your experience, when you actually do give your patients the option, um, they often are relieved and maybe even less likely to do it because they feel they they have options they they have that way out and it reminds me of um i have in the past and still kind of do have a a bout of um or a bit of claustrophobia Mm -hmm. in that um there was a time i don't know a six month period in my 20s when i couldn't even get in elevators without freaking out um or the back seats of cars without um that, and the weird thing was, is that so if, if I was in the backseat of a car and it was a two-door, I was freaking out. But if I was in the backseat of a car and, and there was a four-door, meaning that I had my own door, right. I wasn't freaking out. Even though, you know, I'm careening down the highway at 65 miles an hour, somehow it made me feel better that I could jump out if I needed to. Mm-hmm. You know? Even though there was no reason to be jumping out, but there was just that feeling. And so I... Uh, wasn't going to jump out of the car and never needed to jump out of the car. But having that, having my hand close to the doorknob just 
just reassured me and I was suffering less. And so, uh, so there's that, you know, that's, that's interesting. The other thing you, you brought up was that in order to go through the death with dignity or the decisions to, uh, scale back on treatment, you know, to not extend life, that the family is often involved in mm-hmm. that decision. And so now you're having conversations and you're getting support and there's, you know, for the patient, they might be like, Oh, um, my family loves me. (laughs) (laughs) and It doesn't want me to go. And, but they also, you know, want to have conversations. And now everyone's suddenly having these really intense conversations with me about like how much they love me and, and they're going to miss me. And, and, huh, well, maybe I don't want to leave this planet just quite yet. (laughs) You know, I kind of like this, (laughs) this, this experience of, of, finally having a good relationship with my estranged daughter or something. Um, you know, that brings up an interesting point. I, uh, so, you know, the, the, by analogy, I guess you're extending it to, okay, you have the, the, we're getting back to the 12 year chronic pain, chronic back pain person who's 42 and, um, only say 50% of the audience would say that suicide is, is wise. Um, and you give that person, it's like, okay, here is a system, but it involves announcing it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to your family, um, to those around you. Uh, and, um, and, and, uh, you gotta talk to a therapist, although they're not going to pressure you not to do it. They're going to talk with you maybe about other options. This whole like system comes into play and through that they're like, huh? Okay. Well, I got, I got the option. I know where to go and I, I don't have to resort to jumping off a bridge or, um, shooting myself or something, which is not the ideal. Um, I will be able to take a medication that will, you know, slowly put me to sleep and slow down my heart and then I'll pass away. But, you know, I have that option, but now I, I don't feel trapped anymore. And, and I, have I if I if I need it I can take it and somehow that relieves the pressure and now I feel better about my life and I want to live and I, I don't want to kill myself I, it's not really making sense to me as I say it out loud <laughs> I, I really honestly think that many people uh, I, I feel like more people would die um, but couldn't and, people do that now I mean you can go to the pharmacy and get over-the-counter meds that would be enough to take you out so what would be the difference one one, most people don't know how to do that um and two if they did it is a bit of a pain in the ass i mean uh going to you'd have to get a prescription of course right and no i mean over-the-counter drugs i mean like you could overdose on tylenol if you really took enough you you could kill yourself with nicotine i just saw that on forensic files (laughs) yeah but i think it's uh, you know it's it's harder to be sure of dying from those methods sure um, and they can involve a lot of pain in all in some instances and sometimes people want to avoid that uh, but the fact that uh, many many suicidal people have a gun in their house and they don't do it so it's not that they I don't know it's I'm not really making my point very <laughs> well here but I, I think that um, most people who are you know, heavily suicidal have developed a plan and they know how to do it. And yet, um, and if, and when they're about to do it, if you take, as we said earlier, if you take away their 
primary method, people tend the research shows that people tend not to go to another method. Right. If, if they're sort of locked in on, okay, I'm going to kill myself with my gun, and they live very close to the Golden Gate Bridge and the net wasn't there, um, and you take away their gun, they're extremely unlikely uh, to kill themselves by choosing alternative number two. Mm-hmm. It's not like it doesn't happen, but for some reason, and again, that just points to the uh, ethereal nature of the intent to die by suicide that people have. It's like if you were really intent on dying, you wouldn't care how it was, but somehow just sort of interrupting the process, um, you know, s- stops them from, from wanting to do it. So, so yeah, I, I get it on some level. Um, but I don't, what do you think? Do you think that, do you think you'd be in support of a, you know, Washington law bill that, uh, uh, said that people, if they want to, even if they're not yet, uh, terminally ill to be allowed to have, that um, available, you know, available to them by by physicians. It's a tricky question for sure. Um, and by the way, I know we're at an hour, so I want to make sure I'm respectful of your time. If you have other things to do, since last time we ended up talking for two hours. Uh, yeah, I'm a thing. It I'm a thing at one thirty. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't. I don't know. I think part of me, you know, as I do my job, I'm never. I'm absolutely a strong advocate for death with dignity, but I never say to my patients, oh, here's an option. Let's do that. I'm always, you know, reassuring them that we can care for them and make them comfortable end of life. And even if they want to go through the process, I'm continuously exploring that. Is that the option that they want? So that's the, you know, professional social work part of me. But for my personal opinion, I wish that they would actually expand death with dignity Um, at least for the terminal diagnoses, because so many of them actually don't qualify because by the time you get to six months or less, there are, you're too far past being able to qualify for it. So I, um, for example, like ALS or Parkinson's or something like that, by the time you get to six months or less, you may have developed dementia and not be able to be mentally competent to take the medication or qualify. Um, and Alzheimer's is another one. You know, they they are working into some things about uh, advanced directives where you can have facilities not uh, like they can offer you food, but they don't spoon feed you. So you can opt for that when you're earlier in your years and not through the process. But, you know, dementia can is that take. It? Is, is that the only measure that you can take for dementia? Yeah, <laughs> because by the time you get to six months or less, you're definitely not in any mental capacity to say that you want that. Right. But it, it, it just seems like you could have it, have more options. Like, uh, in fact, I mean, I, V said I, you can I, stop eating and drinking I, when you're still aware of it. Yeah. But that just doesn't seem like the best way to go. You know, I agree. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it, it, like for me, uh, cause I think about this occasionally is dementia and what if, and I, I would, I would like if there would be some sort of threshold that you could measure, like, um, uh, there's certain dementia measures that we have, like, do you know what day it is? Or do you know who your spouse is? Or do you know where you are? Or do you know mm-hmm. what your name, you know, what your name is? Can you even talk? Uh, do you remember how to 
yeah, how to eat and mm-hmm. how to go to the bathroom. Um, I, I would think that for myself, I, there would be some, I don't, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but there would be some sort of threshold where I'd say, if it's clear that there's no recovery and for most of dementia, there is no recovery. Sometimes there's little flashes of mm-hmm. minor recovery, you know, but, but, um, like in, uh, Coco when, you know, great grandma remembers, uh, remember, you know. <laughs> well, actually uh, music and memories, that's what they've shown is music. Uh, touches the deepest part of our memory it's the last thing to, to go so right but we shouldn't mistake that for quality of life you know uh so so anyway it should be up to the individual and for me uh there'd be some sort of threshold that i'd say after that threshold like take me out <laughs> you know because like, <laughs> uh, i'm i'm not there anymore i've i've a, i have gone mm-hmm. me the me i'm gone and you're now just dealing with a thing this is just me I'm not saying this for other people and I wouldn't do this to other people but I would just say I wouldn't want to burden the world with um, with that and so mm-hmm. uh, and my family you know so I would just be like okay beyond a certain threshold um, let me go but I, I wouldn't want it to be stop feeding me that just you know starving to death just doesn't seem especially if your body is working pretty well you know and, and Alzheimer's is uh, uh, you know hasn't progressed to that point in terms of you know uh, well it's not stopping feeding you altogether it's just that um they offer you food and if you don't essentially it is i mean in in essence you're essentially starving that you know that the patient is going to starve to death and to me i'd just be like yeah death with dignity just be like Mm -hmm. um I won't know what's happening anyway so (laughs) i'm not going to be afraid of it you know it's it or if I am afraid of it, I'm probably afraid of everything at that point. And so, yeah, know, I mean, just... I would love to see it expanded to that, but I, I don't know that that's going to happen in our lifetime. I don't know. I, I have more hope because there's there's more, you know, as maybe you know more of the details, but every year there are more states passing laws that are progressing in this direction. There are. There's uh, still only nine that have death of dignity laws, and that's including Washington, D.C. Yeah. So we've we've got a ways to go, but it's possible. Washington, Oregon, I think California, Montana, Colorado, Vermont, Hawaii, and D.C. Maybe there's, sounds like there's some more there. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I like living in Washington. We um, tend to do things um, at the cutting edge. Um, So, so yeah, it does bring an interesting question. I mean, um, but I want to get back to a question. It's kind of off topic, but. I am curious, and maybe we talked about this last time, but, you know, 90-year-old woman who is, you know, in hospice, she's she's definitely going to die within mm-hmm. the next, you know, two months or something, and she hasn't accepted it yet. Um, she's like, and she's been forced into hospice by her family or something, and she has all of her mental faculties for the most part. Um what, what do they say? What do they do in that state? Well, if she has all her mental faculties, she can't really be forced into hospice. She'd have to sign consents. But if she was, you know, talked into it, if you will, uh, begrudgingly, <laughs> uh, then they just might really have minimal contact with us, Take decide to do minimal medications for, you know, pain or shortness of breath or 
you know, they don't want a hospital bed maybe, even though it may be more comfortable to sit with their head elevated and, you know, easier for the family to provide care and that kind of thing. All the things that are scary that I think that's what Bob was referring to, making it feel like a hospital. <laughs> um, they're just resistant to it for a lot of reasons. One is maybe they're just not ready to go. Maybe they want to live forever. I don't know. Um, or maybe there could be some past thing that they're trying to come to grips with or accept. Maybe they have regrets. And that's why we have a holistic care team and our spiritual counselors and our social workers and you know, everybody getting in there and seeing if there's something that they're holding on to that may be preventing them from finding a way to be at peace with it. Have you seen The Irishman? No, I haven't. I don't know if I can tolerate three hours. <laughs> Did you know that it's about that? No. Yeah, Robert De Niro plays a real-life person who was a mob guy, and it, it bounces around from time to time throughout the movie, and the main current timeline is he's in, he's in the, not hospice, but, um, you know, a, 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 he's in a facility mm -hmm. with, other, with other older people and he's reflecting back on his life and there's regrets that he has. Um, and he starts talking to a, um, I think a priest, or I can't remember who's listening to him tell a story. Um, so what kinds of things do you hear from people at, at that stage that they regret? I think a lot of it has to do with relational issues. It either, and especially with our older folks, you know, if, if you're thinking that they're in their 80s and 90s, then they are the baby boomer plus generation. The, the people that, we still have people that were in World War II. Um, not all of them are able to you know, be self-actualizing and, and talk about that. But the ones that are, um, sometimes have, you know, a trauma history or they've done some things. Maybe they were alcoholics or maybe they, you know, had some kind of issue with their kids and became estranged. And that's the thing. So, um, or it could be PTSD. You know, we, we see that as well. So there I'm just guessing relational things like I should have, well, what kinds of things you hear? Like I should have blank. I, I, Cause part of this is I, I don't want to have regrets when I'm <laughs> dying. <laughs> so what, what, which is a big reason why I wanted to work in hospice. So it's just like the wisdom that comes from people at the end of life, I think tells us all how we're supposed to live. Um, so I guess, what do you hear or what have you learned about how to live from these people? Or maybe I'm just romanticizing it. Well, I think um, I kind of have a different experience with death anyway, because I've really had it in my life for as long as I can remember. So my view of death may be a little more pragmatic, for lack of a better word. But I think you really nailed it the other day when you were talking to Bob and you were saying, you know, because you, you you're not sad that you think about death because it makes you appreciate what's happening in your life day to day with what you're doing right now. Are you living your best life right now? And honestly, all the things combined of what they said is really reflective of that, making sure that you're not going to bed angry, that you're not letting things fester and relationships fall away just because, you know, something dumb. And, and that's not to say that if you had a traumatic experience with your 
parents that you should still be in contact with them. You shouldn't still be tolerating a toxic relationship. And that's a whole nother conversation. But if there was something that you felt like you could have resolved or some relationship, especially between um, parents and children or between siblings that they wish they could repair and now they're not in contact with them or maybe they've already died before this person. Um, you know, that's the kind of regrets usually that they talk about. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me. And, uh, uh, you know, you saying that just reminds me to, uh, to do that, that what I said (laughs) to, to, to not, uh, you know, to, to put it in perspective and, and to say, look, you know, today's a blessing and, um, and I'm going to, you know, grab life by the horns and live it and, um, appreciate, you know, and there's a lot of empirical research around that, you know, those who choose to appreciate, um, things tend to have happier lives and, and more fulfilled lives. And, And they're usually more at peace with when the end comes because they feel like, I mean, I've had plenty of people say, you know, when I ask them, how do they feel about being on hospice? They say, it's okay. I've, I've lived a good life. I don't have any regrets. I'm, you know, I'm happy with what, what's happened. And I've talked about it with my family and I'm at peace. And some of that has to do with religion. Some of them have that, you know, overwhelming sense of peace that they know they're going to a heaven or whatever that is for them. And some of it is just, like you said, they've managed to embrace each day, um, you know, kind of uh, titanic it and <laughs> make each moment count. So, yeah, it, it, there have been times because, you know, on a daily basis, I think about death in some way that I will say that to myself. I'll be like, you know what, if I died today, right now, um, I don't regret anything. I'm, I'm, I'm glad of the life that I've lived. Um, you know, not necessarily like I'm, I'm proud of what I accomplished. It's more like if there was juice to be squeezed out of this orange, I've, I've spent time squeezing that (laughs) juice out, you know, like, uh, I, I haven't, I don't feel like because I have been thinking about it since I had any kind of control over my life as a teenager, I, I'm pretty sure that at least I tried to not waste my time and to um, try to make this life worth it somehow to me. Um, so I don't, do you, do you feel like you've lived that life? I try to, you know, that's not every single day. I don't know that I'm quite as uh, prolific or active as you have been, but as far as relational, you know, relationships and that kind of thing and making the world a better place and doing things to, improve the situation i think so um i mean that's kind of one of the reasons i do this podcast is i don't want it to have to be a celebrity or a family death to remind you that relationships are important and that there's things that you can do to improve your life now because we are going to die all of us are going to die at some point it's it's inevitable so yeah i was going to ask you about that i I was like i wonder if you know, starting a podcast for a lot of people has to do with that, um, I don't know, that dilemma or conundrum or existential dilemma of, uh, I have one life to live and it's speeding by and mm-hmm. I want to, I have things to say and I, I want to share and 
I don't, you know, there's, there's no logical reason to start a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It, you know, rarely makes any money and it's a lot of work and a lot of times no one's listening. Um, but I want to, uh, I don't know. I want to make a difference. Uh, but another part of it for me has always been, I don't know if I ever talked about this before is I want it, it, in a, in a way I want to, when I die, I want there to be like a, I want there to be evidence that I existed and also that, um, my brain existed. Not that I think my brain is special, but because a lot of times when, uh, cause I'm a, I'm big into genealogy and I'm big into my family history. And, and when I, uh, think about my great grandparents and, um, I was never alive when they were alive. And so, um, I have stories about them and, and pictures, but I have no idea who they were. Mm-hmm. You know? I, I have a, I have a idea maybe, you know, based on the stories, but I, I so wish that I just had a podcast from them <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, of them just talking about their lives. And, and, uh, I've, I want everyone and not only, for me, but the people I have on the podcast to have this record of who they are. Um, it's, it's another reason why I take a lot of pictures and video. I, um, uh, you know, personal pictures and video of my family and of my life and things that I see in the world. And, and I, for some reason, it just, it just makes me feel good to know that, um, some, someone in the future after I pass away will like go, um, okay, you know, let's go down this rabbit hole and, oh, what's this, what's this thing? And then they, they can know, you know, like, okay, this, there's a, there's a picture and there's a voice and there's a, a, there's a personality. And I don't know, it, it's to some, this will sound, you know, narcissistic and I guess it is, but, and to others, it might find, it might sound like just stupid. It's like, well, you're dead. What's the point? You know? <laughs> you're, not, you're, you're not there to enjoy it. Uh, uh, so what, you know, and, and in certainly in a hundred years, no one will even bother to excavate any of these, these podcasts. But, um, uh, but I don't know, I, that's just something that I, I feel that gives me some meaning. Do you do it for that reason at all? Yeah, I think that's definitely a part of it. I mean, you are the real, you know, the fire that lit the, the match that lit the fire for this podcast when you were saying, you know, if you have something to say, why are you waiting? And when I, when my therapist was alive, rest in peace, Bill, you sucker for dying on me, um, which is another episode you should do about people's therapists dying. But um, he got me to go back to school for the same kind of reason, like, well, if decision making is so important to you and you can change your decision later, but, you know, don't hesitate to make a decision, why aren't you back in school? And I ended up getting back into school and got my master's in, you know, seven years later. I just went straight through. And it's just, it's all part of that. It's just getting it out there and, and doing something, making a difference. Yeah, so huh, we're similar in that way. Um, did he die? I don't know if we've talked about this before, but did he die suddenly? 
He got a really aggressive form of cancer. Um, I was able to talk to him a little bit before, but he was only sick for about two months before he died. Wow. Yeah, that was tragic. Yeah. I mean, it's so hard to find a good therapist. I know. (laughs) Not not to be selfish about it, but it's just like, uh, you know. It's one of the few reasons I wished I lived in Seattle, because I would totally ask Bob to be my therapist. (laughs) He reminds me so much of Bill. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And, and, uh, well, so getting back to suicide... Um, have we explored that, uh, fully to your satisfaction? (laughs) I think for now, yeah. I only had one other kind of out of the way question, which is things like, um, they talk about these trips to Mars, like in our lifetime, they're going to send people to Mars and it's going to be a one way trip. Is that suicide? Right. Uh, That's a good question. (laughs) I mean, uh, I don't think so because there. Because when we send people up there, the, the likelihood of them dying just in transit is is higher than if they didn't go. But there's a chance that they could live a long life up there. Um, now, if they send a mission up there and it's just like, you're definitely going to die in three years because we're going to run out of resources or whatever. Mm-hmm. Then, yeah, I guess that would be. But I don't know. No, I don't really consider that... Because it's a similar conundrum for uh, football players, American football. Mm-hmm. Um, every everybody knows that there are, you know, injuries to the brain and injuries to your body too. I mean, a lot of ex um, former you know professional football players they need hip surgeries and knee surgeries and back surgeries, and, and uh, everyone knows that. And yet they make the choice to do it anyway because the glory and the the i don't know just the wonderful life that a lot of professional football players lead not everyone of course but um it's a trade-off for them right Uh, similar to someone who goes in the military and wants to do right by their country or someone who becomes a police officer and they're like well you know there's a higher chance of me getting killed at the job than if i worked in hospice for example (laughs) sorry Um, i never thought about that when i was in the army (laughs) you you never did no i mean and i i mean i only got like three minutes but i know i was listening to someone i don't remember if it was you or not but they were talking about do we really oh it was on um the adventures of memento mori which is i've told you about that podcast before it's amazing but he was asking people do eight 17 and 18 year olds really have the brain capacity to understand that they are literally putting their life on the line when they join the military and and you may not but it's a realistic possibility that you could die yeah yeah certainly i think some of the people who sign up one either don't think it's going to happen to them or they don't really have the capacity to to think that in depth but i think some people do i a friend of mine who actually did die in afghanistan Hmm, i'm sorry to hear that yeah, in, in the war, he definitely knew. He, mm-hmm. he um, was very dedicated to that idea of sacrificing himself for the betterment of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a he was a special forces Green Beret medic, actually. 
actually. Oh, wow. Um, but their medics were basically soldiers that knew a little bit about medicine. <laughs> right, right. You know, uh, he, he killed people, he, you know. So uh, there were... Um, so anyway, uh, there's that. But yeah, so I think in conclusion... If I was to conclude this conversation, I've, I've learned from you, and I think there's more to be learned from you about this, given your experiences. But um, I think that we should mature as a society when it comes to death and also uh, suicide, but also rational suicide, death with dignity. We definitely have some room to grow. Uh, I think we've come a long way, um, and these other states need to figure it out as well. Um, and that it's complicated. And I feel like the whole picture has to be considered um, in collaboration with the individual, that um, someone is, is in, not hospice, but say they're in palliative care, and they're like, I, I definitely want death with dignity now. And I think with enough education, you could you know, say, the whole spiel I said earlier of just like, well, you know, with proper holistic care, a lot of people decide they don't want to kill themselves. I think when you present that, you really make an argument for it. Um, you know, you're going to get some takers. You know, okay, well, let's give that a shot. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to you're going to get some people who are like, no, nope, I, I, you know, I know I'm going to die in the next five years of this, and I, I'm already suffering so greatly, and. I personally, I don't, I don't care. I don't want to take that chance. You know, I'm ready to go, man. Right. Um, I, I think that we need to, um, uh, I mean, at the very least we need to respect the space for people to talk about that and be respected with their choice. Um, how exactly we go about it and the procedure, um, it does get dicey because as I said, a lot of people, if you get them over the hump, they thank you for getting them over the hump. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it, you know, uh, but it doesn't mean that we avoid it. It doesn't mean that we treat everyone like their suicidal thoughts are uh, temporary and silly. Um, so it's complicated, is my conclusion. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so, so much for being on, and I'm sure we will do this again someday. Yeah, well, thanks for having me back on, and it's it's always good to chat with you. And at the next live event, I'll see you and your mother at some point. <laughs> I'm sure I'll be there. <laughs> All right, have a great weekend. <laughs> okay, see you. <ya. laughs> bye bye. All right, that was my interview with Dr. Kirkonda from the Psychology in Seattle podcast. If you have any comments or questions or other things you want to talk about regarding suicide or any of the other episodes that we've done please feel free to email us at someDayDeadPC at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at someDayDeadPC. We're on Facebook as well, Someday We'll All Be Dead Podcast. And that is where we're at. If you would be so kind, I don't have any commercials on this podcast. I am paying for all of this myself. So I humbly ask that if you have the time and you would be so inclined, can you please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast or share an episode that you think someone might be interested in? And of course, we'd very much appreciate five stars. Please do take care of yourself because you deserve it and because someday we'll all be dead.